everybody, welcome to Encounter. Let's all stand and sing to our God this morning. Let's put our hands together. When I was searching, your love was never far. You made a way to get to me. You were the whisper leading me to your heart. Forever I belong to you. Now I can see clearly, my God, you for me. You won't let go. Your love won't let me down. And I know it's true. Yeah, I know that your love is all around. I believe in you, holding on to you, holding on, and I know you will never fail. I want all of you, you'll never change your i 
You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let. Sing this out. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me Welcome to Encounter. My name is Bethany Fenema, and I serve on the starting team here at church. We're so excited to have you here this morning. In the seats in front of you, you'll see your connection cards. These are just a quick and easy way for you to get in contact with us. If you'd like to update your contact info or let us know about any prayer requests you might have, you can go ahead and fill those out and set them, put them in the buckets as they come by in a few minutes. Another great way to communicate with us is through social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On your programs, you'll see a list of next steps. I'm going to go ahead and highlight two of them for you right now. First off, we are so excited that in the month of November, you can join us in doing good. Yay. <laughs> um, we'll be partnering with three local organizations so that we can love where we live. We're having a food drive to support the pantry, a diaper drive to support uh, young lives, and thirdly, on Monday, November 20th, we're hosting a blood drive here through Michigan Blood. For information on any of those, you can take a look at encounterchurch.org slash doing good. Secondly, for anybody involved in any of those drives, on Sunday, November 19th, save the date because we'll have a professional photographer here to take pictures for you guys for free. At this time, I'd like to invite our ushers forward to collect the offering. Whether you give online, via text, or here in the buckets, we take this moment to celebrate together as a continuation of our worship. Well, welcome everybody to the 1145 worship experience. We are so happy, and I know everybody's like awake and alert after the extra hour. My name is Dirk, the preaching pastor here at Encounter Church. We're in a series called We Are For, because the church is so often, too often known for what we're against. This is our opportunity to stand up and speak about what we are for. So to kick off the today, the second installment of the series, I want to ask one of these rhetorical questions. I don't just kind of like shout anything out or raise your hand or anything like that. 
that, but just like think about it. Uh, think about it, if you've had one of these times, one of these experiences where you're in a group of people and somebody starts speaking up who has no business speaking up. And you know that because they're offering insights or they're offering advice about something that everybody else in the circle knows that they have failed repeatedly at. But they keep on offering advice as if they're like have this amazing amount of success with it. So like what I'm talking about is the guy in the, in the circle who starts giving relationship advice when everybody knows that he has like this long string of broken relationships behind him. And you're like, what credibility do you have like speaking into this? Or that time that right when, uh, when, the, when the girlfriend in the circle starts uh, sharing like financial advice when everybody else knows she's broke. Like she's always been, even on paydays, she's broke. It doesn't matter what job she has. When I invite her, you know, to go out for lunch or whatever, she's got to go in the trunk of her car and return a bunch of stuff to Target to like raise the capital to buy lunch that day. But yet she's giving uh, budget kind of finance advice. Or it's the person in the circle who has started something and then have successfully driven it into the ground at least a half dozen times. And they're the ones who are speaking about what it means to be an entrepreneur or what it means to like risk or, or start something new. And, and as they're talking about the thing that they have failed so often at, like all of a sudden it starts to click for you that maybe, maybe they actually do have the authority to talk about that thing because they have failed more often at that thing than everybody else in the circle combined. So, so nobody else knows what it takes to fail better than they do. And so you're like, seriously, I want to know more. This morning, you all have an opportunity to listen to that guy <laughs> as we're going to talk about one of these values that I'm just going to like admit to everybody, I think I really, really stink at this thing. And in fact, I think of all of our values, this is one of them that we as a church probably mess up more than all of the other ones. So remember in this We Are Four series, we're doing like keeping Jesus at the center. I think we're pretty good at that. I think we're pretty good at, at bringing people who are far from God to new life in Christ, the values that we got to last week. This morning, what I don't think that we're very good at, if I could just be honest and blunt with everybody, is I don't think we're very good at doing life together. And I would love to be able to say, well, the reason why we're not you know, very good at doing life together is because, like, I don't know, like the church is like half millennials and everybody knows how they are, right? We can blame them for everything. But no, no, no. I can't do that because I think I have had this incredible amount of influence around here for the last seven years. And this is something that personally I really struggle with. And personally, I think I really fail at often. And so if my influence has been worth anything, I think it's kind of like just actually dragged us on and created this thing. So now I feel this burden, this responsibility to address it. So hopefully we can get better at it. In fact, I didn't even want to put this on one of our church's values because we stink at it. I stink at it. I know I stink at it. And I thought, well, it can't be one of the values. And then somebody introduced me to this concept of an aspirational value, right? It's not something that you do exceedingly well already, although it happens in pockets, but it's something that we would love to grow in and do better. So this morning, we're going to talk about how to do life better from somebody who doesn't know how to do it better, but I failed enough times to be able to hopefully offer you a couple of insights this morning. And I also want to say that I don't think I'm the only one who stinks at it. Right? I think there's probably a few more people who are like, we do life together. Like, really? It's really deeply uncomfortable for me. And in fact, the American Sociological Review uh, did a study a few years ago, and they said, they, they found out that if, if they were to ask uh, the average American, all these Americans, uh, to write down the name, this would be a fun exercise to do if I'd have thought about it earlier, but <laughs> to write down a name, the names of all of the people in your life that you're close friends with, all of the people who are trusted friends. If you were to take the opportunity to write down the names of all the people that you're not married to or romantically involved in, who are friends of yours that know your business and you know their business, they know your highs, you know their lows and vice versa. Like these are close, trusted friends. And you just start like writing all those things out. They found that the average person could come up with just two names. 
What's more is that they found 10 years ago when they did this study, they found out that when they did the same thing, trusted, close friend, you know their business and they know yours and vice versa, they came up, the average American came up with six names. And if two points make a line, this does not bode well for our future. In fact, they said that one in four people, when asked who their close friends were, who their trusted people were in their life, they know their business and you know their business, they could not come up with a single name. And so while disappointing, while devastating as that may be, especially as you go through a valley or a season of life when you're really relying on a community that might not be there, there also poses for us this possibility. There also poses us for this huge monumental potential that we are just one community away. We are just one meaningful community away from a changed life. And I think because of the story we're just about to read in the Bible this morning, that not only we are one community away from a changed life, but we're in fact one community away from a changed world. If you have a Bible with you, or if you'd like to use uh, ours underneath the, uh, or in the seat back in front of you, go ahead and flip to Acts chapter 2. Now, Acts, uh, is it kind of in the back of the Bible? The Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is too soon. The ones that are difficult to pronounce are too far. Back it up a little bit. Acts chapter 2. I want to set up the story for everybody a little bit because I think it's important to know what the most important thing going on in the story is or maybe isn't. Um, what has just happened in the story of Acts is that, is that Jesus has died and then he has come back to life again. Right? And then he's like intermittently showing up with different people and he's teaching them and he's like, he's kind of helping them along in their journey. And then he would like disappear again and then he would, he would intermittently, like I said, show up again in their lives and then go again. And one time he had all these different people like gather up. You get the impression it's maybe a hundred or so-ish people and they're all gathered on the side of a hill, kind of near, near the top of this, this mound. And Jesus starts ascending up into heaven. And it was such a remarkable, uh, memorable event that the church remembered that day by calling it Ascension Day, because we're super creative like that. And so they remembered, that's the time Jesus went, that he was, he was going up into the sky, and then a cloud hit him from sight. And everybody's like staring up like, like slack jaw, right? Like, what in the world just happened? And an angel comes and says, hey, why is everybody staring up in the sky? And they're going, are you, are you they're like, serious? Yeah, I, Jesus had just, and the angel says, essentially, we've got a lot of work to do. Now, all these disciples are hanging out. Uh, again, now, it's not just uh, the 100 or 120 or so, but individual disciples. There's 11 plus one. They added a guy after Judas. These 12 guys are hanging out in this room, and something amazing happens. It's, it's like these, these like, tongues of fire, these like, little bits of flame uh, start on somebody's head. And then it starts like going to the next people all around the room until everybody has one. I mean, if that wasn't amazing enough, like they start speaking and, and they're all speaking in different languages. Now, this isn't like gibberish and they didn't just automatically know these languages. This is a miracle. And we know that it's not just gibberish or different words because other people passing by visiting Jerusalem could hear them speaking in their native language, their learned language. And so they're walking by, and these people from Asia, from Egypt, from Libya, from Crete, from Rome are outside, and they can hear people speak in their own native language. So obviously, it starts to draw a crowd together. Now, that's the second amazing thing. The third one is that Peter stands up, one of the, one of the followers here, and he starts like, like speaking to everybody, and he says, hey, you got to know about this guy, Jesus. He, he died, and then he rose again from new life. And he says that if you give your life to him, you can live forever. Turn away from yourself, turn towards him, you can live forever. And that people found it so compelling that 3,000 people were added to their number. So they're no longer like 120 people, they're like 3,120 people. But of all of these things, and again, reading this story, reading what other people maybe have said about this story earlier in the last couple of weeks in preparation for today, there's one guy, William Willimon, who's not important, his name is just kind of fun to say, who, who wrote about this. And he goes, you know, he's a theologian. He goes, you know, the most incredible part of this story, the most amazing part of the story wasn't the tongues of fire. 
It wasn't even all of the different languages that the people spoke in, reuniting all of these people from all over the world. The most amazing miracle in the story wasn't even the 3,000 people that were added to the 120 or so people already that day. The most amazing miracle of the story is the community that happens next. Listen to this in Acts 2, verse 42. Words are also going to be on the screen behind me. It says, they, this is the whole group now, 3,100 or so people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the mighty wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That's, that's the miracle. The miracle is that this massive group of people continued to meet together, continued to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. You could say that that was, uh, today that would be something like reading the Bible. They didn't have the Bible, they had the apostles. And the apostles were to write the Bible a little bit later. But they devoted themselves to the teaching, that's like reading the Bible today, to fellowship, community, doing life together. More on that in just a minute. Uh, Third one was breaking of bread, euphemism for communion, Eucharist, Mass, whatever you want to call it, Lord's Supper. Uh, It's a euphemism for doing, for, for church. And then the fourth one was prayer, which is actually just prayer. That one's easy. That's a freebie. These four things, a lot of people say, make up what it means to follow Jesus. Bible reading community, church, and prayer. And I think, this is just my hunch, but I think Luke, who, write, who wrote this story for us, knew that of these things, what we would struggle with most is the ones that, not the ones that we can do on our own, like Bible reading or prayer, but the ones that have to be done in community with other people. Because as we all know, people are the worst, right? Like, by present company included. Like, I get that. I mean, I mean, I'm a pastor, and I often find myself, right, like, oh, man, church would be just so perfect and so awesome if it wasn't for just, like, the people like me, right? Like, sorry, I mean, no offense, but you, you had to have seen that coming. Uh, we say things all the time, right? Like, I love Jesus, but I'm not sure about the church. And I get that. I do. As somebody who loves the church and loves being a part of the church, I also see why Jesus is so much more attractive than the church. Because Jesus is good and he's perfect and he's loving and he's merciful and he's literally every good thing ever because Jesus is Jesus. He's God. And then when you hold the church up to that, and we're like, the church is like, this is a bunch of liars. I mean, hypocrites. They preach on stuff they know nothing about. Right? The, the church is a whole bunch of sinners, like broken, fallible people. It's like, that's exactly right. Why would you love the church anywhere close as you love and are drawn to Jesus? It makes perfect sense. We're not nearly as good. However, and this is just what blew me away earlier this week and kind of getting ready for today. It's that God tells, in the New Testament now we're on, God tells the story of Jesus in four different books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the rest of the New Testament is essentially God telling the story of how the church took that message and changed the world. Like, isn't that amazing? And that's that miracle that Willimon was getting at about the story here. Because the church is so broken and is full of so much liars and hypocrites and sinners and everything bad. That's the church. But for some reason, God in his infinite wisdom has decided to use the local church to take the most important story ever told and bring it to the world. And in doing so, change it. And so it's, it's what God does here in this community that is so important. It's what God does in this community that can change not only your life, but also the whole world. And Luke gets that, and he knows that. And so when he's writing the story of the acts of those first people, he says in Acts chapter 2 that, that following Jesus might boil down to these four things, right? Bible reading, community or fellowship, breaking of bread, that's church, and prayer. And he goes, yeah, but we really need to spend some extra time now on that second one, that doing life together. And so he drills down in the next couple of lines on just that one. Let me read the rest of it for you, and we'll make some comments on it. It says in verse 44 that all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This is like church at its best. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. You can understand why a lot of people come away from a passage like this and say, yeah, that is, that is, like, that is the golden age of the church. That's the church functioning at its best. That is what we are called to when Christ is, is absolutely glorified and honored in each of our lives. And so I want to say the kind of community that that is, the kind of community that's going to change you and the kind of community that's going to change the world, I want to pull a few things away from this and to say just on the surface level, it's not, it's not any community that's going to change you and change the world, at least not for the better. The first one that I want to hit to is that it's a distinctively Christian community. It's a community with Jesus at the center. Listen to him when he says in verse 42, this is recap because we heard it already, is that they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to scripture reading. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to prayer, to church, to breaking in bread in the homes. They, de- they came back to this constantly and consistently with this single-minded kind of determination. The, the word that's used is an ongoing action, that they continually devoted themselves to these things. So you're just going to kind of want to pull away and on the very, very surface level, just sort of say, like, the kind of community that you're, that you're one community away from changed life and a changed world, this isn't like the guys that you drink beer, eat wings, and watch football with. That's not the kind of, it'll change you, but not in like the way that we're talking about in church and not the way that we're talking about changing the world. The kind of community uh, that, that is called on here, this distinctively Christian, Jesus at the center, single-minded devotion kind of community is not the type of community of just friends who like to hang out or like to go shopping together. This is something so much more and so much different than that. And I have to say that one of the things that makes it distinctively Christian is this community happening with other people, which is a difficult thing because especially, I think, in our culture, especially kind of the stream that we swim in, and this isn't like an entire you know, indictment or just an angry preacher at American culture or whatever. This is just like, honestly, this is how it is, and I think we, should, we ought to be aware of it, is to simply say that each one of us, myself and included, I love my independence. I love not having to rely on any other people. In fact, I find it really irritating having to rely on other people all the time. And, and there's like this part of me, a large part of me, that just wants to react out against that. I, I, I want to prevent that from happening. I, I want my complete and utter independence. But at the same time, I also know, from the story that we're reading, I also know that that to, that to crave my independence is a distinctively non-Christian thing. Because God has put us in community. God has chosen to change the world through the community that he has called his church. And I don't know why, but he did it. And, and so I want to kind of, I'm going to highlight that. Highlight also that we say things around here, and I, and I don't regret saying it at all. I think we have a good intentions when we say it. But we hope that whenever you come here and experience God on the weekend, we hope that you leave here knowing that one of the most important things for you, maybe the single most important thing for you when you leave here, is that you should have a personal relationship with God. And the reason why we say that is so incredibly important is because we also know, I know, that in the culture that we swim in, that God is sometimes reduced to a force or a karma or a being like out there somewhere. And it's so easy to see God as like this far away, distant creator, thing, person. And, and every weekend we try to highlight the importance of having a personal relationship with God because it's like we want to take the God who is way then and there and like bring him into the here and now and say, no, no, it's important for you to know that God can be known. He's revealed himself to the Bible. And God wants to know us and hear us be in relationship with him. And so it's so important, so incredibly important to have a personal relationship with God. But what I want to tell you this morning is even better, even more important than having a personal relationship with God is having a shared relationship with God. 
What's even more difficult than experiencing God on your own, maybe through Bible reading or through prayer or putting out some tunes, is showing up to church and like worshiping God, not as an individual, but in community. What's better than a personal relationship with God is a shared relationship with God because God is continually revealing himself, not just to you, but, from, but to every other believer, and they're revealing God to you as well. So distinctive, the first thing is like distinctively Christian community, Jesus at the center. And even better than a personal relationship with God is a shared relationship with God. And I can't even believe that I have to say the next one. But we're going to go there anyway and say in verse 44 that all the believers, by the way, were together. I cannot even... If I were in the shoes of the disciples or the apostles, the first believers, there's no possible way that I could, I could ever have imagined a time when people would trade real face-to-face relationships with virtual ones. But I think that God, in his infinite wisdom, he like knew the power of social media, knew the power of computers and smartphones and everything that is coming next. And God, in his infinite wisdom, says, you know what they need to hear? They need to hear that the disciples were, were like communing. The disciples were developing community face to face and not like thumbs to thumbs, right? That's what's incredibly important. It's just a, just a highlight this face to face development, not only a distinctively Christian one, but one developed face to face not thumbs to thumbs. This is dangerous, I think. It's dangerous for me as a parent of little kids, as a parent of a seven-year-old and a four-year-old who are going to grow up and just like automatically know, automatically assume like the power of social media. I mean, I love, I love social media. I think our church does a great job with it. We want to leverage this thing for everything that it's worth all the time. Right, like I, you know, side plug. Like if you don't follow us on Instagram or Facebook, you should. Uh, it's pretty good. I don't do the content because because uh, I'm terrible at it, uh, but, but other people have. But I love flipping through. After Halloween, it's one of my favorite days to to just go through Instagram, Facebook, and all this sort of stuff because I love seeing everybody's ridiculous pictures. I love seeing you know those of you who have a Yorkshire Terrier and you dress them up like Chewbacca. Uh, you know, I'm gonna heart that all day long. That is awesome. It's so fun for me. But like, I do that. I do that, and I, and I hope, and I know that you smile. You know, maybe just a little. You know, something good happens inside of you when you get that, you get that like or you get that heart. I mean, that's a good feeling. And I hope when I do that, you do smile. Because it was a lot of work dressing your dog up. And it, was, it was worth it. <laughs> but the danger for people who are now going to grow up with it all the time, and I think of my kids in particular, and something that the, uh, the Atlantic uh, magazine uh, published about five years ago. And the author said that social media is creating an epidemic of deferred loneliness. I thought that was such a good line. Social media creates an, an epidemic of deferred loneliness. You know, when I heart that thing, or when I like that thing, I hope you smile. You should. But I also know that at the same time, that doesn't alleviate loneliness. That doesn't cure loneliness. It just kicks it down the road a little bit more. Every time, it just kicks it down the road a little bit more. And a build is coming for that sum of goods. Social media creates an epidemic of deferred loneliness. It is not meant to replace face-to-face, not thumb-to-thumb, human interaction. I looked up uh, earlier this week, just kind of curiosity, uh, what is the opposite of loneliness anyway? So I just Googled it. You know the first two hits that were returned? Just just Google. This isn't like pastor resources or anything. Uh, (laughs) Side note, that's pastor resources, Google. But uh, (laughs) the first two hits on the opposite of loneliness, crowded and popular. And I thought, that's about where we are. The best that we hope for to combat loneliness is their popularity or simply being in a crowd. And I thought that is, I mean, that's a bummer. That's sad. As Christians, as New Testament believers, we have this resource available to us. We have at the center of our faith something so exquisitely unique, 
Something that, that I think no other faith, no other story has. And I think we've too often just forgotten about it or neglected it, felt it weird or unimportant. What I'm talking about is we have at the center of our story, the center of our faith, a God who is mysteriously, who is even miraculously three in one. Now, let me tell you the power of this thing before we get into uh, how important it is. The, the God who is three in, in one, I, I don't always get it. I know that it's not like an egg where it's like shell, white, and yolk, but yeah, one, but yeah, three at the same time. I know that that's partialism, that's tritheism. I also know that you know, God three in one is, is not like water, which is like steam, ice, and liquid, because that's modalism. That doesn't appreciate the threeness nearly as much. Like, I don't get it. It's a, it's a mystery. It's a miracle. I don't always understand it, but I, but I know that God is Father. I know that God is Son, and I know that God is Holy Spirit because he's revealed himself to that way, that way in the Bible. And, and I appreciate the power of that, and that's so important now when we talk about loneliness and how our culture settles for something as shallow as, as crowds to combat loneliness or, or popularity to combat loneliness. C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, and he goes, the, the statement that's so incredibly powerful that comes out of that three-in-one God is simply the statement, three words, you've heard them all before, God is love. Think about the power of that statement and how unique that is to Christianity, how unique that is to the way of Jesus. Because no other story or no other world religion could possibly say that God is love because before the creation, before all of it, there was just God and there was nobody else to love. But at the center of our story, but the center of our faith is a God who was before creation, who is still three in one. Before anything else was ever created, the Father was loving the Son, and the Son was loving the Spirit, and the Spirit was loving the Father, and God was one and three, and there was love before any of us were ever a part of it. And I, and I love how beautiful that is about how the creation, all of this, it comes out of a place of such love and such sacrifice and such mercy of God as he is just in and of himself. And so continuing on C.S. Lewis then, when he says, listen, if we want to get to the heart of anything, you have to go to the source of it. So if he, he says, if, if you want to experience heat, you go towards the source of fire. If you want to experience what it's like to be wet, you go right up next to the lake so it might splash up on you. If you want to experience joy and power and grace and mercy and even eternal life, you go right up to the source of all of that, which is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is what God is drawing us into, life together and we would swap that face-to-face -face development for thumbs-to-thumbs. -thumbs. Clearly, God has something so much better, something so much more in mind for each one of us. But it's not going to be easy. And it is going to cost us something. Uh, li listen to what it says. Continuing um, on in verse 44, it said, All the believers they had everything in common. Oftentimes when we talk about this passage of Acts chapter 2, like the idea that we have in our minds is that all the believers, they sold everything that they had, like all at once is this big, you know, clear house, clearing house, it's all gone, and they handed it all over to the followers of Jesus, the disciples. And I want to say there were communities like that, and some people even in this community were called to that. But what I think is important to know is that that wasn't the, the normal. That wasn't like what was expected out of everybody. And I think that's actually an even more beautiful thing. The verb that's used um, for they sold everything is a verb that has like an ongoing nature to it so, so that they were like continually selling their stuff or maybe their time to provide for everyone as he had a need. So, so at the same time, there was like, there was like I keep my, my property but at the same time, I'm not the owner of the property. Like, I'm, just, I'm simply the manager of the property. And so as needs arose, I would hand over some of my time 
and service, or I would hand over uh, some of my things to sell off in order to meet that need. It says a little bit later that the followers, they continued to meet in each other's houses to break bread and for prayer, for fellowship, for this doing life together. So we know that they kept what they had while at the same time, like handing it over to God and saying, the purpose, the goal of my life is no longer the accumulation of wealth, but the glory of God. And God is most glorified when needs are met within the community. And that's such a cool picture. And so I want to say the community costs something. That idea of doing life together costs something. What does it cost? I I try to be very personal on this and, and say what I say doing life together costs It's too much time. I don't have the time to to develop all these relationships. It's not the time. You have time for what you make time for. I have time for what I make time for. It isn't time that's the cost. It's that fear of rejection that's the cost. Because I worry if somebody sees me for who I really am, they'll reject me and they won't like me. Or they'll call out my stuff that we know we have on an intellectual or maybe theorized level, but now we know exactly what it is. I've been working my way through this book. Uh, Donald Miller, who wrote uh, Searching for God Knows What, Blue Like Jazz, uh, one of his later ones, is scary close. And he talks about how each one of us were born with this like perfectly good, well, not good, but like perfectly self-contained little self, you know. And we have our faults and we have our fears, fears and we have our failures, we have our sins, but, but in and of its own, it's fine as a little self-contained self. But what happens is on the outside of that, it, on the outside of that, there starts to be this guilt or something happens and somebody calls us out of something that we're embarrassed about and so it creates shame. Or we have something to be afraid of or afraid to lose, and so we have fear. And so on the outside of ourselves, we develop this like shield of, of guilt and shame and fear. And we don't want anybody else to see that. And so Miller says we, we create this character or this, this persona or this mask to wear on top of all of that so, so that we can keep on pretending so nobody else will ever see our guilt, so we'll never see our shame, we'll never see our sin or see our fear, and thereby never actually seeing who we actually are. And I want to say that in preparation for today, this is putting a lot of this together, knowing what I was going to be talking about. I had one of these moments that I realized I do that. I put on a mask and I pretend to be a character that I'm not. Because I don't want people to see the guilt, to see the shame, and to see the fear. And so I lose out on the opportunity to ever actually truly be known. I remember doing this about three years ago. I remember exactly where I was. I was in a coffee shop, and I was talking to a young developing leader. And we're talking about being real and being vulnerable. And I said something like, to an extent. And having good instincts, he drilled down on that and said, what do you mean, to an extent? I said, well, if, if people actually knew who you are, people are people and they will hurt you. And so, like, I, I implicitly, I, I advocated for wearing the mask, for wearing the shield, so that none of our guilt or shame or fear could ever get through, and so that we would actually be known. And earlier this week, it just absolutely wrecked me as I was thinking about this terrible advice that I gave this young leader. And so I'll be honest, like, I texted him, I reached out. This is interesting. I reached out, and I just said, listen, three years ago, I know exactly, here's where we were, this is the booth that we were sitting in, and I told you this thing, and I was flat out wrong. And I knew some other stuff that was going on in his life, and I expected fully for him to, you know, this is why you're a bad leader, this is why I'm not an encounter anymore, this is like, whatever, like all of this stuff. But what I received wasn't any of that. What I received was grace. What I received was love. And that if we had the expectation that when we enter into this, we would receive grace and we would see love, I think it would dramatically transform the depth and intimacy of the relationships that we now have. See, what God is teaching me, what this story is teaching me, 
is that we can impress people all day long with our strengths. But we connect with people through our weaknesses. When we lay down whatever that guilt is, whatever that shame is, whatever those fears and sins are, when we lay down what our weaknesses are, we may not be impressing people, but we develop something even better. We develop a connection with people. And we look at the heart of this faith. We look at the center of this faith. And we look at a God. We look at who the church serves, Jesus Christ. And we know that he could impress us all day long by sitting on high, seated next to God the Father Almighty. And by his strength, he can continually impress each and every one of us. But God didn't simply want to impress us. God didn't want to impress you. He wanted to connect with you. And for that, he needed weakness. And so he stepped down from on high. He chose to be born into a part of this world that he himself created. He developed meaningful friendships, relationships with people that he poured his heart out to, his fears out to. And as they came and arrested him, they fled. And as they stripped him naked and strung him up on a cross to die for the world's sins, they were not 100 feet away, pretending never to even known him. And we look at Jesus and we see that's connection, that's passion, that's how badly God wants to connect with each and every one of you. He wants you to know. He wants you to know that you do not do life alone. He wants you to know that you do not fight cancer alone. He wants you to know that you do not fight depression or anxiety alone. He wants you to know that you don't dig yourself out of that financial mess alone. God wants you to know he doesn't put your marriage back together alone. He wants you to know that no matter what happens or what you're in recovery from or what addiction you have, you don't do life alone. And I pray that Encounter Church is this community where weaknesses can be shared and connections be made. We're going to celebrate communion in just a, in just a couple of minutes. I'm going to ask you to pray, and we're going to have the table and the bread and the juice. And you're going to be invited to rip off this tiny little piece of bread or pick it up out of the basket as it makes its way by. I want you to know something. This is not what God had in mind for community, for doing life together. In fact, as you take that bread and as you drink from, from that little tiny cup, I want you to realize that that's not community. That's just a reminder of what it's supposed to be like. In your cars on the way home, around lunch, gathering together with friends, that's the connections that God has in mind. That's the place to be vulnerable. That's the place to be real. That is the communion that this points towards. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Jesus, you have modeled for us this incredible view of what it means to be strong, while at the same time, God, you have shown us how to be weak. God, we're afraid of being weak. I'm afraid of being weak. I don't want anybody to see my guilt, my shame, my fears, my sin. That's understandable, God, for each one of us. But we know for all the masks that we wear, all the characters that we play, there's something lost. There's an intimacy that's not experienced. And God, you desire for us to be connected with each other. You desire for us to be connected back to you as the source of community, of life together. Holy God, by your spirit, show us how. Give us courage to speak when it's quiet or give us wisdom to remain quiet when we need to listen. God, may you be honored in this act of communion, not because it's a simple piece of bread, or a bit of juice, but because it's a foreshadowing 
of the community we will have this week and one day regain with you in heaven for all eternity. In your name we pray. Amen. Dear friends, in just a moment, the ushers will come forward and pass around place. We invite you to take a piece of bread and eat it. Take a cup of juice and drink it as you feel led and as we continue singing together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and breaking it, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and lifting up it, he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, we proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. Dear friends, the gifts of God for the people of God.
child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child. Let's sing that one more time. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Come on, let's celebrate what God is doing in our lives this morning. Let's call upon his name. We need no other hiding place. Our hope is safe within your name. This we know, this we know. You promise never to forsake. What you began, you will sustain. This we know, this we know. Sing this out. I will call upon the Lord, for He alone is strong enough to stand. Rise, your shackles are no more, for Jesus Christ has broken every chain. all of the heavens all of the heavens and the earth announce the fullness of your worth yes we know yes we know come on and every enemy will every stronghold it breaks every fear in our lives so let's sing this next part out just over our lives let's believe it Jesus name will break every stronghold freedom is ours when we call his name Jesus name above every other all hail the power of to save rise 
your shackles are no more for Jesus Christ has broken every Life is better when we do it together and in community. And don't forget, you are one community away from a changed life. We'll see you next week for part three of We Are Four.